The Bible often refers to mysteries, um, mysteries of truth, mysteries of God. And these things are not mysteries in the sense that they cannot be fathomed or uncovered. But they are mysteries in the sense that they need to be revealed to us by God. When Gail and I first started um, making friends, there was a whole lot of stuff that I didn't know about Gail. I could learn a lot of stuff by observing and seeing the way she lived and the way she spoke and the way she related to people. But there were certain things that I just wouldn't have known unless she'd revealed it to me. And so what I'd like to do this morning as we, as we prepare ourselves to hear God's word is to ask the Lord Jesus Christ to reveal to us mysteries about himself and about his truth this morning so that we would see things that we've never seen before. So shall we just pray and ask that that miracle would happen? Father God, we ask that even as your Holy Spirit is here bringing freedom, that you would open our eyes to mysteries about you, to truths that we haven't seen before. Not things that we can't grasp, but things that we would never see unless you revealed it to us, that we would never hear unless you spoke it to us. And so we're asking this morning that this would be a special time of worship for us as we come to your word, so that we would hear from you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. So we're on to our number six tough question, and this has to do with the hype of the Bible. If you spend time chatting to a Christian, you'll soon realize that he holds the Bible in very high regard. And if you start scratching a little bit deeper, he'll start to explain to you some of the beliefs that he has about the Bible. And the first thing is he'll say that its inspiration is verbal. Now that's just sort of theological speak for that it means that the original authors of the Bible recorded God's revealed truth in the exact words that he chose. Hence that word, verbal. So the inspiration of scripture is verbal. It's also another word that's used by theology students is plenary. And what that means, I just mentioned it so that you don't get bamboozled or confused by anyone. <laughs> um, plenary means that it applies in the same degree, the inspiration applies to the same degree to the whole of the Bible. So a Christian doesn't believe that only some parts of the Bible were inspired, or nor do we believe that certain parts are more inspired than others, you know, like the New Testament more than the Old Testament. And then thirdly, we believe that the writing of the Bible involved the dual authorship of God and man. God allowed his word to flow through human authors whilst involving their emotions, their personalities, their frames of reference without violating those things. So if you're reading something by David when he was a shepherd, you would see his frame of reference coming through. If you, if you read something written by Solomon, you would see the fact that he was a very wise man and that he was a king. And yet both of them were inspired by God to end up recording the exact words that God wanted in the Bible without violating their own characters and who they were, which is an incredible thing. And then fourthly, we believe that the Holy Spirit superintended inspiration whilst carrying the authors along by his power. And so if you take all of this into a nutshell, we say that the scriptures are without error or without omission. 
So these are pretty lofty claims. And so what I'd like to do now is to try and provide some evidence just to show that the Bible is unique. We'll just simply start there at that point, just to show that the Bible is unique. Um, the word unique is defined by Webster as one and only single or sole, different from all others and having no like or equal. And I think that this definition may as well have been written to describe the Bible. First of all, it's unique in its continuity. We're going to go through quite a lot of stuff here now, so just uh, hold on to your seats. Um, the Bible is the only book that was written over a period of 1,500 years. Isn't that amazing? It was written by more than 40 authors including kings, prophets, shepherds, a doctor, generals, an engineer, a Pharisee, and the list just goes on. It was written in many different places, written in the desert, written on a mountain. Jeremiah even wrote at the bottom of a well. It was written in times of war and sacrifice, as well as times of peace and prosperity. It was written during different moods. Sometimes the people were elated from a victory. Sometimes they were discouraged and depressed, even suicidal. It was written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. It's written in three different languages, in Aramaic, Hebrew, and Common Greek, the New Testament. It was written in a wide variety of literary styles, poetic, historical, logical, legal, didactic, prophetic, once again, the list goes on. This is something else which I think is hugely significant. The Bible addresses hundreds of controversial subjects with an amazing degree of harmony. If you can think of a, of, of a controversial subject, it's there in the Bible, and the amazing thing is that whether someone is writing it about it um, two and a half thousand, three thousand years ago, or whether it was just two thousand years ago, there's an amazing coherency about it all. And in spite of its diversity, the Bible presents a single unfolding story, which is God's redemption of human beings. Such an amazing story. And then finally, and most importantly, though the Bible is a story of multiple characters, it's above all about one character, the one true living God made known through Jesus Christ. Consider first the Old Testament. The law provides the foundation of Christ. The historical books show the preparation of Christ. The poetic works aspire to Christ, and the prophecies display an expectation of Christ. In the New Testament, the Gospels record the historical manifestation of Christ. Acts relates the propagation of Christ. The epistles give the interpretation of him, and in Revelation is found the consummation of all things in Christ. So from cover to cover, the Bible is centered on Christ. And so Josh McDowell writes, Therefore, although the Bible contains many books by many authors, it shows in its continuity that it is also one book. Is it so strange then to claim that it was God who wrote this amazing and inspiring book? So it's unique in its continuity. Let's move on to talk about circulation. It's not unusual for a bestseller to sell maybe a few hundred thousand copies of a book. It's rare for a book to sell more than a million copies, and it's remarkable if it tops the 10 million mark. 
Uh, let me give you an example of this. The, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, I'm not talking about this, the trilogy of the three books. The one book, The uh, Return of the King, that is estimated to have sold about 150 million copies. But according to the 1995 edition of Guinness World Records, the Bible takes first place with an estimated 5 billion copies sold and distributed from the beginning of time. I also visited the United Societies, Bible Society's website. It records that the number of full Bibles made available around the world, now this is full Bibles, not talking about portions of it or New Testaments, it topped 304 million, uh, so it's top 34 million per year for the third year running. So in the last three years, it's topped 34 million sales. So if you can imagine a long line of people and you hand out one Bible to each person every five seconds, it would take you five years and five months to do what the United Bible Societies did in one year, last year. So that's an incredible amount of circulation. It's also unique in its translation. Very few books uh, have been translated into more than 10 different languages. The full Bible is now available in 692 languages. The New Testament has been translated into a further 1,547 different languages. And then shorter portions of the scripture are available, available in another 1,123 languages. So the Bible, or portions of it, have been translated into 3,362 languages. That's just over half of the known languages in the world. But by translating it into that number of languages, it's possible to reach about 95, 96% of the world's population with, in, with the Bible in a language that they can understand, even if it isn't their, their first language. So, such a unique book, unique in continuity, unique in circulation, unique in translation. What about survival? And this, this really just blows my mind. I want to talk about how it's been unique in survival through time, persecution, and criticism. First of all, through time. The Bible was originally written on perishable materials. So um, right in the beginning, it was written on papyrus, which would wear out after time. Um, and then it was also written on vellum, which is a special kind of thin leather that it was written on. So it had to be copied and recopied for hundreds of years before the invention of the printing press. In spite of that, the scriptures have never diminished in style or correctness nor have they ever faced extinction. Compared with other ancient writings, the Bible has more manuscript evidence to support it than any 10 pieces of classical literature combined. So this has been determined by something that's called the science of textual criticism. And in a nutshell, the more manuscripts there are, and the earlier those manuscripts are, the less doubt there is about the original. So just to show you there on, on that particular table, um, for example, Caesar's Gallic Wars. That was written 58 to 50 years um, before Christ. The earliest copy of it came 950 years later, and there are nine to 10 copies of it. And historians are more than convinced that what they've got in Caesar's Gallic Wars is what was originally written. 
But if you look at the New Testament, for example, that was written between AD 40 and 100. The earliest manuscript portion of it was from AD 130. Do you see how much closer that is? Caesar's Gallic Wars was 900 years gap. This is only a gap of 130 years. If you want a full manuscript of the Bible, the first one was, came 350 years AD. So, and then the number of copies of early um, copies of the Bible, 5,000 in Greek, 10,000 in Latin, and 9,300 others. So there's more than enough document, documentary evidence to show that the, the, we have no problem with the, with the Bible. Let me read you a quote by a man called John Warwick Montgomery. He observes that to be skeptical of the resultant text of the New Testament books is to allow all of classical antiquity to slip into obscurity. For no documents of the ancient period are as well attested bibliographically as the New Testament. So good to know, isn't it? Unique in survival through time. Unique in survival through persecution. Oh, there's some more on time. Let me read you another quote. John Lear, in, in his, his, his book, The Greatest Book in the World, refers to an article in the North American Review in which the writer made some interesting comparisons between the writings of Shakespeare and the scriptures. The author of the article maintained that much greater care must have been bestowed upon the biblical manuscripts than upon other writings, even when there was so much more opportunity of preserving the correct text by means of printed copies than when all the copies had to be made by hand. The author wrote, and I'll quote, it seems strange that the text of Shakespeare, which has been in existence less than 208 years, should be far more uncertain and corrupt than that of the New Testament, which is now over 1,800 centuries old, during nearly 15 of which it existed only in manuscript. With perhaps a dozen or 20 ex exceptions, the text of every verse in the New Testament may be said to be so far settled by the general consent of scholars that any dispute as to its readings must relate rather to the interpretation of the words than to any doubts respecting the words themselves. But in every one of Shakespeare's 37 plays, there are probably a hundred readings still in dispute a large portion of which materially affects the meaning of the passage in which they occur. And Shakespeare's works only just over 200 years old and printing has been in effect ever since the start of that. So, I said we'd move on to persecution, here we are. Over the millennia, countless attempts have been made to burn the Bible or to bin it or to ban it. In AD 303, the Roman Emperor Diocletian issued an edict to ban Christianity and destroy the scriptures. 25 years after that edict, the Roman Emperor Constantine issued another edict ordering that 50 copies of the scriptures be prepared at the government's expense. And Constantine, as you may know, declared the Roman Empire to be a Christian empire, just 25 years after Diocletian said that it would be banned. And to produce 50 copies of the, of the entire Bible at that time was a hugely expensive exercise, so very significant that he would have done that. 
The noted French unbeliever Voltaire, who died in 1778, declared that in 100 years from his time, Christianity would be swept from existence and passed into history. Only 50 years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society used Voltaire's press and house to produce stacks of Bibles. This quoting there from Geisler and Nix. And then we ask this question, well, could it be right when Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away? That's from Mark 13, 31. What about criticism? The Bible has attracted fierce criticism right from the beginning. I'll read you a quote from H.L. Hastings. Unbelievers for 1,800 years have been refuting and overthrowing this book, and yet today it stands as solid as a rock. Its circulation increases and it is more loved and cherished today than ever before. Unbelievers with all their assaults make about as much impression on this book as a man with a tack hammer would on the pyramids of Egypt. When the French monarch proposed the persecution of the Christians in his dominion, an old statesman and warrior said to him, Sire, the church of God is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. And so the hammers of infidels have been pecking away at this book for ages, but the hammers are worn out and the anvil still endures. If this book had not been the book of God, men would have destroyed it long ago. Emperors and popes, kings, priests, princes and rulers have all tried their hand at it. They die and the book still lives. At one time, biblical scholars were quite concerned about certain criticisms of the Bible. One was called the documentary hypothesis, and that was built on the belief that the Pentateuch could not have been written by Moses, the Pentateuch being the first five books of the Bible, because they, um, archaeologists and scholars believed that at the time, um, writing hadn't been in existence. And then some archaeologists discovered the black stell. It had wedge-shaped characters on it and contained the detailed laws of Hammurabi. Was it post-Moses? No, it wasn't. It was pre-Mosaic. Not only that, but it preceded Moses' writings by at least three centuries. Another criticism pointed out that the Bible was wrong to say that there were Hittites at the time of Abraham because there were no records anywhere else of their existence. But they were wrong again. Archaeological research has now uncovered more than 1,200 years of Hittite civilization. I'm quoting there from Josh McDowell. Earl Radmacher, retired president of Western Conservative Baptist Seminary, quotes Nelson Gleck. He's a former president of the Jewish Theological Seminary at the Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati. And Gleck was one of the three greatest architects at the time. I listened to Gleck when he was at Temple Emmanuel in Dallas, and he got rather red in the face and said, I've been accused of teaching the verbal plenary inspiration of the scripture. I want it to be understood that I've never taught this. All I have ever said is that in all of my archaeological investigation, I have never found one artifact of antiquity that contradicts any statement of the Word of God. So it's unique, this book, in its continuity, its circulation, its translation, its survival. What about in its teachings? 
let's deal first of all with prophecy. You know what it says in Deuteronomy 18? It says that a prophet is to be declared false if he makes predictions that are never fulfilled. And here's the thing. No unconditional prophecy of the Bible about events to the present day has gone unfulfilled. Hundreds of predictions, some of them given hundreds of years in advance, have been fulfilled and they've been fulfilled literally. The time, city, and nature of Christ's birth were foretold in the Old Testament, as were other, dozens of other things about his life and his death and his resurrection. Numerous other prophecies have been fulfilled including the destruction of Edom, the curse on Babylon, the destruction of Tyre and Nineveh, the return of Israel to the promised land. Lots of other books have claimed divine inspiration, like the Quran, the Book of Mormon, and parts of the Veda, which is the Hindu scriptures. But none of those books contain, contain predictive prophecy. As a result, fulfilled prophecy is a strong indication of the unique divine authority of the Bible, says Geisler. I was listening to Ravi Zacharias the other day in one of his podcasts, and he, he said that one of his professors at Trinity College um, said that in regard to, to prophecy, prophecy is a very difficult thing, especially when it's about the future. <laughs> and I think that's quite good. And that's the thing is that the Bible predicts things in the future, uh, things that, that came to pass. What about history? I'm just going to mention one piece of evidence here, and it concerns the reliability of the table of nations in Genesis 10, because I've mentioned it a few times in, in sermons over the last few weeks. Um, someone called Albright concludes that the table of nations in Genesis 10 stands absolutely alone in ancient literature without a remote parallel even among the Greeks. It remains as an astonishingly accurate document. So it's unique in its prophecy and in its, and its history. What about in character? The Bible deals, and you'll pick this up the minute you, you open up the Bible to start reading it, it deals with the sins of its characters. And even when those sins reflect badly on God, on his chosen people, on his leaders that he's appointed, and even on the people who are writing the Bible themselves, you would think that all of that stuff would have been sanitized out of the Bible, but it wasn't. The sins of the patriarchs are mentioned, the sins of the people of Israel are denounced. King David's adultery, I mean, I think that's famous. We all know about it with Bathsheba and his um, attempt to cover it all up by, by murdering. Then the gospel evangelists, they paint their own faults. They point the, paint the faults of the, the apostles. And the disorder within the church is also exposed in the epistles. Tremendous disorder in the church. So this book, the Bible, it focuses on reality. It's not focusing on fantasy. It presents the good and the bad, the right and the wrong, the best and the worst, hope and despair, joy and pain. It's all about life. And that's what it should be like because its ultimate author is God. And it says in the Bible, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him whom we must give an account to. So, unique in its continuity, in its um, circulation, its translation, its survival, its teachings, 
let's deal very briefly with its influence on literature. It is in his now classic anatomy of criticism, world-renowned literary critic Northrop Fry observed that, and I'm quoting now, Western literature has been more influenced by the Bible than by any other book. And then 25 years later, Fry wrote, I quote again, I soon realized that a student of English literature who does not know the Bible does not understand a good deal of what is going on in what he reads. The most conscientious student will be continually misconstruing the implications and even the meaning. Then lastly, the influence of the Bible and its teaching in the Western world is clear to anyone who studies history. And the influential role of the West in the course of world events is also equally clear. Civilization has been influenced more by the Judeo-Christian scriptures than by any other book or series of books in the world. Indeed, no great moral or religious work in the world exceeds the depth of morality in the principle of Christian love, and none has a loftier spiritual concept than the biblical view of God. The Bible presents the highest ideals known to men, ideals that have molded civilization. I'd like to read you a quote from Grady Davis from the New Encyclopedia Britannica. He says, the Bible brought its view of God, the universe, and mankind into all the leading Western languages and thus into the intellectual processes of Western man. He also states, since the invention of printing, about mid-15th century, the Bible has become more than the translation of an ancient Oriental literature. It has not seemed a foreign book and it has been made the most available, familiar, and dependable source and arbiter of intellectual, moral, and spiritual ideals in the West. Another quote from a guy called Gabriel Sivan. He says, the Bible has given strength to the freedom fighter, a new heart to the persecuted, a blueprint to the social reformer, and inspiration to the writer and artist. And then lastly, French philosopher Jacques Rousseau, he said, Behold the works of our philosophers, with all their pompous diction, how mean and contemptible they are by comparison with the scriptures. Is it possible that a book at once so simple and sublime should be merely the work of man? And I leave that question with you today. Is it possible that a book at once so simple and sublime should be merely the work of man. Folks, Christianity is not about taking a blind leap of faith. It's about taking a step of faith based on compelling evidence. And whatever it is that you want to look at or discuss about the Bible, there is always compelling evidence. There may be, not be enough just to take you that last step. That last step is a step of faith. And so when we say that the Bible is the inspired word of God, that it's the verbal, plenary, inspired word of God without any error or mistakes. We're not making an assertion that cannot be based on evidence. And we've had a brief look at some of the evidence today. There's a lot more. Um, so let's, let's just pray and see what the Lord uh, wants to do with us as we move forward. Father, we thank you so much for this amazing book that you have provided for us. 
We thank you that you inspired it and that you wrote it through ordinary human beings like us, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, they wrote down to every last word what you wanted them to write. We thank you that the whole thing is dependable. We thank you that the whole thing hangs together and that we can find out about you as we read this book. And Father, as we prayed at the beginning, we ask that you would reveal your mysteries to us as we turn to your Bible. Father, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us as we turn to the words that are recorded in this book. And we ask that the Holy Spirit would work with each one of us as we do that. 